This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the FinTech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. I'm Elliot Gotkin, and in this episode, is it an insurtech? Is it a unicorn? Is it a hippo? It's all three, as we speak with Asaf Wand, co-founder and CEO of Hippo Insurance. The VCs kicked us off the stairs and basically said, uh, that's the dumbest thing ever because insurance is not a VCable business. You can't do that. It's regulatory. It's capital. It's, it's just not a good fit for that. And then it flipped to being really, really interesting. And we were fortunate enough to be in the forefront of that. Asaf Wand, co-founder and CEO of Hippo, uh, great to have you with us on the FNTech podcast. Thanks for having me, Elliot. Uh, well, look, you are one of, if not the hottest insurtech on the planet, but uh, I'm sure there are still some people out there that may not know exactly what you're about. So please tell us about Hippo. Let's start uh, one of, definitely not the. I think there are some amazing companies out there in the insurtech space, and we're one of. We, you know, Hippo Insurance, what we'll focus about is basically recreating the entire home insurance experience for the customers, making sure that we have the latest in coverage. So we're covering you for, instead of fur coats and pewter boards and china and silverware, we'll focus on your electronics and your home office and things of that sort. Uh, we enable you to purchase however you want. You want on your mobile phone, you want to call an agent, call an agent, you want to buy it via your mortgage company. We're agnostic. We'll let you purchase however you want. And we believe inherently that the best claim experience is avoiding a claim from happening in the first place. We're using all of the big data components that we have in our disposal to basically preempt before loss is happening. So we're using aerial imagery to tell you, I see there is a discoloration on the roof and I think you should get a roofer. We give IoT device to every one of the customers. Uh, that's what we're about. So it's really about helping customers... <laughs> helping customers reduce their risks so that they're less likely to make a claim or if they have to, that the claim will be lower. Exactly. Okay. Now, just one thing that's been bugging me a bit, Asaf. I mean, hippos, they look quite cuddly, but as many people who watch wildlife programs will know, they are the deadliest large land mammal around. Why did you choose hippo for your name? Shh. Hey, you're not supposed to. It's a cuddly, warm and friendly animal. What are you talking about? The... <laughs> uh, the idea behind the name is that we're in a world where you can't come up with names. There's just no more names for, for stuff. Because in, for everyone in the world, you want to find a domain and a handle and a Facebook thing and a Twitter handle. And, and you, you know, you just, and now a TikTok and an Instagram. You just, there's no more names in the world. And it, it just becomes a lot more difficult. You also want to find a name that is memorable, and in the case of insurance, actually not associated with insurance. Nobody likes their insurance company, so why, why do I want a strong association? And so, you know, you, we played with different things. There is usually a crazy debate at the beginning when you start a company on what's going to be the name of the company. We knew that it's, this is a discussion that is not necessarily worthwhile. My wife came up with this name. After you run, you know, every flower, every animal, every Latin gods, every Greek places, every whatever you, you run, there's less and less and less. 
you're coming up with something. We entered, we started with the name Hippo with the thought that uh, there is probably an 80% chance that we're going to need to shift the name over a period of time. And and somewhat it stuck. And then we got the Hippo.com domain and we there are no other real big companies or something in the domain that are having, that are Hippo something. And we kind of fell in love with it. And we, we you know, we really, really like it. It's memorable. It's fun. It's slightly whimsical. People can associate with it and remember it. It's, you know, th- that's our name now. Also, you know, implies being being very big and, and very strong as well, which which no doubt you're on the path to becoming. <laughs> now, I, I know people, you talked about where you got the inspiration for the name, but I know that entrepreneurs get their inspiration from all sorts of places. Your father, if I understand correctly, was in insurance himself. Do you think that consciously or subconsciously that impacted your decision to ultimately found an InsurTech? <laughs> I'm sure there's a component in it. I, you know, I'm not a Jung or a Freud uh, person and can sit on the on the couch to basically let you know what percentage basically attributed for that. But I'm sure there is a component somehow that you want to prove your your parents wrong, and whatever your parents did, you can outdo or not do, or, or, or show them all of the stuff that I told them it can do differently. I'm sure there's a component someplace in there. Can't attribute how much, you know, it's basically years to to that. But, you know, I can't discount it as well. Okay. Well, I mean, you grew up in Israel. You, you did your compulsory military service. Can you tell us what you did? Or, or is that is that a secret? Uh, I don't know. Everything is a semi-secret in Israel. I, I, I was in the Air Force for five years and I finished uh, with the rank of captain. Okay, Uh, because, of course, it's been well documented, especially in books like Startup Nation, that the Israeli military is a kind of breeding ground for tech entrepreneurs. How did it help turn Asaf Wand into one, if at all? Uh, Wow. I I love that there is this uh, speech that, you know, Steve Jobs is, is giving in Stanford. And one of the main points that I really, really like in there is that you can only connect the dots in hindsight. And when you're in it, you can't like, you know, you can't plan the dots. So in hindsight, I think it gives you some leadership experience. It makes you accountable to things. It teaches you that small, dedicated group can accomplish things that massive, you know, groups can't accomplish. You know, we're Israelis so to begin with. We have uh, less respect for orders, regulation. We're not very good. And someone tells us that you can't do something <laughs> just try and find a better reason to do something than, than someone tells you it can't be done. You know, and, and the military is infusing all of that while forming us as individuals because this were a really, really important time. You know, I was between 18 to 23 in the military. Quite a bit of, uh, you know, especially being an officer of walking the walk and not just talking the talk. The difference between accountability and just you know following someone there, there's a lot of these things, and I'm sure it's it's part of me personally, which I'm sure translate a lot to the company, but it's one of these dots that you can only tie in hindsight. And so, when you come out of the army, what happens next? Uh, travel the world like every good Israeli who needed a break. So Southeast Asia and Australia and New Zealand for probably nine or ten months. And basically started studying law and finance at the Interdisciplinary Center in Herzliya. That was basically it. I was 24-ish, 25 almost at that point of time. People in Israel, the, the parents do not pay for our tuition or, or living expenses as opposed to the U.S. where everything is paid and cost, you know, 50x what it cost in Israel. And if you tell your parents you want to live in Tel Aviv, they're like, awesome, they live in Tel Aviv. 
and you're saying, yeah, I need some help. And they're like, okay, fine. So work someplace. So you start work as a waiter and, you know, whatever. I started working as a trader in Tamir Fishman, basically trading at night and studying in the day. Did that in the middle of the heydays of the internet bubble. So it was a very interesting time, you know, 1998, 99, etc. Then was fortunate enough to join the investment team of Intel Capital in Israel as a, as a student initially and did that for almost three years. Learned a lot, amazing team. Intel in Israel is a, is a very strong place. There's, you know, there's two factories, there's a couple of R&D centers. It's a very interesting place. Then really, really needed a break after the military and school and all of that kind of stuff. So went to uh, Chicago, did my MBA in University of Chicago, which was awesome. And did a summer with McKinsey in New York and decided to, to stay and stayed for, you know, a couple of years more in McKinsey in New York in the financial institution groups. Did a lot of work for insurance companies. And if I thought before that, you know, I need to prove my dad wrong, now once you really, really open the kimono, then you realize how broken it is. And the, and the real seed or the significant realization that I can do something in that space was basically formed in that time. But of course, you didn't go straight into Hippo from there. I think your first startup no. was in the telecom space. Yes. So I went back to Israel, launched a couple of telco startups. One of them was buying and basically buying the spectrum in developing countries, mostly in Africa, and building a wireless IP network over there. And in another company which built a multi-tenant tower business, basically the big cell towers that you lease to different cellular providers and TV and radio. And that was in India. So any place other than Israel, that's basically where I work. Was fortunate enough to meet my better half at that point of time. And she's not just my better half. She's way smarter and, and, and you know, and ambitious and, and everything, basically. And she wanted to do her master's, and we found ourselves in Boston. And we went to MIT where she did her master's. I was left with the realization that the more senior you are in an organization, the less likely you are to be able to work remotely. That, you know, if, if you're just an engineer in an organization, then fine, you can maybe code from afar. But if you are basically a COO of a company, you need to be in the where the decisions are happening. And you cannot be, you just, you can't do your job properly as a senior person by being remote. And we came to the realization it's not going to work. So I, I basically parted ways with my co-founders on the, in the company. And this was Forest, this was Forest Telecom. So I guess, you know, gallivanting across Africa and Asia wasn't, wasn't going to work uh, no, in the context it, of what it, you were just difficult. saying. Yeah, and then the time zone from the, yeah, it just was difficult. And I started, I decided I have in me another company and I started a company called Sabi and Sabi was building branded goods for baby boomers. And the thought was that the world is maturing and the people that are maturing are very different. It's baby boomers. It's our parents. So in many ways, they are healthier than the generation before them and they're looking for different things. But on the flip side, they still have arthritis and obesity and all kinds of stuff. And nobody was catering to them as a group. Everybody were caring for the caregiver or the, you know, the son who's supposed to buy the stuff for the parents or the whatever, home care facility. And I thought we can actually target these people specifically with very well-designed products that are a lot more ergonomic and beautiful and do not have shame. So think of 
grab bars. Every time that you go to an hotel and you're getting the handicap room, it fills off. Everything looks like a hospital. And then you think, why does hospital needs to be designed like that? I get the functionality, but can it be slightly, you know, different materials, different color, something with a lot more tactile feedback and things of that sort. And I was fortunate enough to team up with some of the best designers in the world, with Yves Bachar, with Philip Stark, with Barbara Oscarby, and designed all kinds of lines of products, did that for six years and had an okay exit, wasn't something, you know, too much to write about, but, but sold the company and spent a couple of months at home figuring out what I want to do. And the next thing was Hippo. Well, before we come to Hippo, I just want to, there were a couple of other things regarding Savvy. I mean, I was listening to an interview with a guy called Rory Sutherland, who's a VP at Ogilvy, and one of his mantras is don't design for average, saying that things designed specifically for people with disabilities, for example, often end up being valuable to many more people than originally planned. Was that kind of your hope with Savvy, or was it just very much focused on, you know, baby boomers having more disposable income and wanting products that don't look like they should be in a hospital? There was a thought that there's going to be a lot more people who's going to basically, you know, adopt it. But people over the age of 50 have 91% of the net worth and 67% of the consumption and 63% of the net income. There is usually a, a true kind of assumption that your parents are more wealthy than you because they already finished paying for their house and they accumulated more resources and things of that sort. And they're at the top of their career, so they're probably earning more money but they're actually spending less in many ways. So there's, you know, this, this true kind of reasoning is, is still valid. Now, well, the world is maturing, you know, the world is not growing. Developed countries are growing at 1.2 to 1.7%, but people are maturing at a rate of 4.4% because this was, think about it, it's like a python that, that basically ate a pig. And, and the, big, the pig is basically the, 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 the boomers. And that moves in the belly and now we're at a point where they're training to be 50 or 60 years old, which is what basically transpires. But birth rates in the world are actually going down. And, and there is this, this misallocation of, of basically resources. And we thought there's a vast opportunity and you can build a massive brand. The thought that I had, which is it's still valid, but it just didn't materialize. I think the timing was off, was that if you're a consumer package good or consumer durable good brand in the world, you basically have no growth. If you're PepsiCo, if you're Coca-Cola, if you're Procter & Gamble, you can't see any more growth. So because shelf space is being shrunk on, you know, basically there's just less retail than there used to be before. You compete with private brand that of the stores. People are buying, there's more and more, there's an abundance of new brands that are attacking you from the top and from below. You're actually stuck in this dead zone, which is the middle brand, which is what we're seeing in the world now for all of them. And the thought that I had is that the only way that they can actually grow, not by acquisition, which they're doing now, you know, to, to acquire more shell space, was to innovate on age. What I mean is I thought there's going to be a Coca-Cola infused with calcium and a Procter & Gamble shampoo that for people that are, you know, losing their hair or, 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 or getting their hair to be white and all kinds of things that would cater to the maturization of the population rather than just a 30-year-old person. And if you, well, I, can, I can geek out for hours about these things. <laughs> but the thought was that if you looked at the age of, of a buyer in the 70s, it used to be a 31-year-old mother of two kids in suburbia US. 
But if you look at all food now, you're going to find it's a 47-year-old, uh, probably still a mother of two kids, but the kids are not at home anymore. And, 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 and the purchases are probably done two or three times a week, as opposed to once every week, week and a half, that you buy one bulk kind of purchase. The entire pattern, the entire kind of thing. And I thought the entire component of how a retailer is set up from lightning, lightning in the store and where you depict what, what products and how do you present them and the size of the font and the tactility and the explanation, everything needs to be a full redo to cater to the new demographic, but nobody was doing it. So this was my hypothesis. I researched it to, to no avail, and I think we were probably 10 years too early. Well, just one thing before we move on to, to Hippo. I, I know you're in a, a completely different space, but you somehow, I understand, with Sabi, managed to run into a spot of bother thanks to Apple. Can you, can you tell me about that? We're in a world where at one point or another, you're going to, be, uh, you're going to do something with, with Apple <laughs> or, or you're going to be hit by some component. In my case, it, you know, we built hardware and you built most of the hardware in Taiwan or in China. And you were trying to manufacture, and there was a certain point where I needed to ship the products back to the U.S. And we, we started getting answers that there's just no, you know, there's no capacity. You can't send anything. And we're like, what the hell are you talking about? Okay, so just do it next Monday. And they'll say, no, no capacity. Tuesday, Wednesday, no, 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 no capacity. And we're like, what the hell is going on? Can't you find like me a boat to, to throw the stuff on? And then they're saying, no, what happens is Apple is launching their new iPhone, and they bought all of the capacity out of uh, Taiwan for the next like month and a half. Now I'm a tiny brand and uh, now I need to air freight it for a cost that basically going to demolish all of my gross margins. And, uh, and you have Apple who, who basically bought up front. And it's, you know, it's the lovely world of hardware. You're stuck with that. Then there is Chinese New Year, which is another thing and returns. If there's something I swore to myself is uh, to try to avoid hardware as much as possible in my next company. Right. Well, you've certainly done that with, with Hippo. So, so you said you had an okay exit with, with Sabi, and then came Hippo. And, and the original idea was what it is right now, which is to cater to homeowners and, and help them reduce their risk and basically make the whole process pleasant and have them have a good relationship with their insurer? I, I, basically, yes. There's some, you know, what in, I wouldn't even say tax. I would say there, there's just a broadening of the vision from what we started. We started a company because the main instigator first was that the average age of an agent, when we looked at it six years ago, was 58. And 87% of new agents to the profession were leaving the profession within less than three years. And we thought that the simpler lines in insurance, because of that, they have to go direct. So the thought that we're starting, we're starting like, we're going to build a Geico of uh, home insurance because you have in auto, you already have Geico and Progressive that are basically controlling the market and the only one who's making market share. And we thought, you know what? I think that home is very ripe for that. So we started as building the Geico of home insurance. And then with time, it evolved to uh, modernizing home insurance because we realized that the coverages that we're supposed to offer customers were obsolete. We, we didn't feel comfortable with offering you coverage for fur coats and pewter balls and china and silverware and gold bullions and stamps, but we can't cover your home office. And your, you know, the gear that you're basically recording me now is not covered on your standard insurance. And electronics are capped at $2,000. There was just a bunch of like stuff that this is not how people live their life now. There were several other components that really, really bugged us. For instance, when we look, I, I think now it's, it's not anymore prevalent, but 
gay couples couldn't be registered as, as, as spouses on the same policy if they were uh, same gender. Because if they were not allowed to get married, how can they own a home together? They were all kind of ridiculous thing or didn't give you optionality even to do that. And we just felt that that's completely off. And we don't believe, we don't, I don't want to launch a product that I don't believe in it. And we, it forced us to basically change the product. Changing the product is filing. There are 50 departments of insurance in the US. So you need to file with 50 different regulators. Each one has its own whims and, and, and quirks and, and interesting components. So it became a way heavier lifting. But on the flip side, it's also, once you're surpassing it and you're on the other side, it's a significant barrier to entry. I know you've been growing super fast. I think your plan is to cover most of the US by, by the end of next year. Has, has coronavirus turbocharged your growth at all? I think coronavirus have sped up the implementation and the adoption of digital distribution by probably, I don't know, two to five years. Companies such as ours is set up for that. We work remotely. We have no problem. The systems are on the cloud. We, we we're relatively agnostic. We're set up to support direct distribution. People can purchase however they want. We have chats. We have so so the company is kind of like it was almost a non-issue. Shifting from working you know in the office to remotely and doing everything was was almost a non-issue. And we did have an increase on when we still do uh, of people that are actually purchasing. Uh, second thing which was very interesting was there was a, there was I would say a different channel mix. So when the COVID started, what happened is we had a lot of switchers that couldn't reach their insurance companies and things of that sort because so there was a disproportionate amount of switchers. A, they were annoyed. And the second thing is the other channels that we had, such as supporting new home purchases, were shut, shut down. Nobody was buying a new home at that point of time. And after three months, what happens is that in the US now, there is a surge. There's, it's, we're in a record time of home buying. And the reason is that you spend four or five months in your home, you're okay actually with your income, you're settled for, for specific people that are, their income hasn't been hurt. And the first thing that comes to your mind is like, I really need another room. I really need an office. I could really use a backyard. So what you're seeing is a massive increase in DIY, in renovation in the house, or actually people that are switching homes and moving to another home. So that created a second search for us of basically new home purchases, which is also uh, very relevant for home insurance. So that's on the business side. On the, I would say, personal professional side as a, as a, as a founder, CEO, I would say productivity has improved. There's no travel. People are, are got a sense of what's going on. They're focused. So if anything, productivity has, has actually improved in the company. The two challenges that I have is I think creativity has been hurt significantly. There's no corridor discussion. There's no Elliot get hold of a staff and say, listen, I have this crazy idea. Do you want coming up for five minutes or you sitting up? It's, it's a lot more directional and intentional. You set up the meetings on Zoom with people and it's siloed. So the tech team is more productive, but within the tech team. And there's a lot less this interconnectivity and we're trying to do it and chats and a lot more all ends and better communication. But overall, I really see how it, it's getting uh, impacted. And a question that I'm asking myself now as well is churn and, and, and loyalty of people. We never had this issue and we still don't, but it's something that I'm, we probably onboarded 100 new members to the company. 
and they haven't, you know, we, we can talk about the culture, et cetera, but they haven't been in the office. They haven't experienced it. They haven't met people. There's no real commitment or bond that was solidified there. I'm just afraid that it's going to be transactional because what would prevent Elliot from saying, listen, just, uh, you know, another company just offered me $10,000. Here's a, you know, at best it's a Zoom call to Asaf. At worst, it's an email. We never formed enough of a relationship and you just took another job. So this is something that we're not seeing, but I'm constantly uh, thinking of. Right. It's an interesting part of this debate about the future of, of work, you know, whether how it is going to impact people. Obviously, some companies have said that, you know, their employees can stay at home for as long as they want. Others want them back uh, immediately. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, tech companies. I think JP Morgan was saying there some of their traders have to come back. And it is very difficult, obviously, as you're running a business. The business may be doing well thanks to more adoption of, of digital products. But, but obviously, as an employer, it also brings its challenges. Although, am I right in understanding that, that one thing you've done for your employees is actually set up a kind of school for those that would otherwise be having to teach their kids at home? Yeah, so we, we, we built a hippo school and we basically took over the YMCA in it, which was shut down, and we bought tutors and all of our employees can basically uh, drop their kids. It's open from eight to five and it's, it's basically in, in small groups and they're helping different kids manage their Zoom calls. So, you know, this, this entire COVID shifted you from a parent to also be the head of IT and, and the cook and the, the gym teacher, like every freaking thing. And it's a problem. And we figured if it's stressful for me, I imagine how stressful it is to, to some of my employees who, who are, not, are less fortunate or don't have enough uh, resource or don't have a backyard, etc. And we decided to put all of our efforts and we built the SIPO school, which is exactly for the employees' kids. And we have, I don't know, several tens of kids in these schools. And it's, it enables everybody to, to basically be sane again. And it's good for the kids to have a separation between home and, and school. And someone is managing to them. Still have some social touch points, which I think is one of the biggest problems for me. This entire schooling ex- uh, experience have brought school to be all of the negative and not the positive. Think about it. Like all of the stuff that you as a kid used to wait for, which is recess and lunch break and meeting your friends and going and playing basketball after after school is gone. It's all of this stuff that you hated in school. And it's even that you don't have a minute to say hi to your friend. You're like, bam, zoom, you're in the middle of the class. You need to be concentrated. You're getting homework. And then you're out and in. And it's like, it's all of the negative. It's not, you know, it's just not the full kind of experience. And we wanted to at least supply it to to basically the kids of our employees because I'm personally, as a, as a father of two kids, constantly worried about that. And we thought this is something we can basically utilize the company to help all of our employees. Well, as someone who's trying to balance work with homeschooling with, with two kids as well, I can, I can imagine just how appreciative your employees are for that, for that hippo school that you've done. Now, now, we recently had Daniel Schreiber, a CEO and co-founder of Lemonade on the FNTech podcast. They also felt insurance was kind of the financial sector that technology left behind. Do you, do you view Lemonade as competitors? I think there's an overlap, but it's a, it's, it's, it's such a massive market. It's a $100 billion market. I think the press always wants to make us uh, competitors. We have very different approaches. I think there's more than one way to skin a cat. It's not that it's going to be a winner-takes-all. I really, really uh, like what they're doing. I think their, their UX is awesome. I think their messaging is awesome. They're a lot more focused on creating a millennial brand in insurance, and I think they did a phenomenal job on that. they actually proven that you can create a new 
brand you know, in insurance for millennials and stuff like that, and, and massive kudos for that. We'll focus on the main property of, of the individual, which is usually the biggest financial assets that you have, home. And it's a, in many ways, it's a more complex problem. And we're going a lot deeper. They're going broader and extended to pet insurance and things of that sort. We're, we're a lot narrower, but going a lot deeper. And our aim is to basically safeguard your number one property, your number one kind of financial asset, and have a relationship to help you out with it. We have a telemaintenance company that we basically bought and resurfaced. So every customer of Hippo can call 24-7 to our claim center, and someone's going to help you. If you want to install a shelf, if you want recommendation of a plumber, if you want to do a project in your house and you want to vet three contractors, they're going to help you with that. Our aim is to help you take care of your home on an ongoing basis, and we'll focus on that. I think Lemonade has done great things. It's just, you know, it's a different, it's a different company, and we, we appreciate very much what they're doing. And, you know, it's, it's not one, one kind of team. We're all herds of unicorn pushing together and, and, and all boat rise kind of situation. So herds of unicorns, but but different animals. I, now, Lemonade, of course, went public, had its IPO earlier this year. I saw you quoted uh, saying that uh, Hippo will go public in 2021. Is that still the plan? Is an IPO for Hippo, Hip IPO or Hippo? I don't know. Uh, is, that, uh, is that still the plan for next year? Uh, it, uh, I don't know if I was quoted. I think the, the, the question was, are we open to go public in 2021? And said, so, yes, we're open to that. Uh, I think an IPO is not the the goal it's a mean it's it's a financing round as well as giving you some tools and some liquidity to employees and early in, investors and it's important but it's not the all you know it's it's not what it's not my goal my goal is not let's just go and then be uh public my goal is to build the the most successful long-lasting insurance uh carrier or insurance company in the u.s and if we think that going public is you know, enhancing the chance that 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 prospect, or fast forward that, then then we'll evaluate in the right time. But it's you know, it's one of the things that I can't deny that is not on the board discussion. But it's not a goal, and we're constantly evaluating that. My aim is to be ready. So if we need to, we can be, we can actually go. So so it depends on Hippo's needs rather than kind of market how the markets are doing at that time. Oh, you know, we can't we can't ignore if the market is very frothy and, and 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 accommodating. We can't ignore that, but it's just one more input. Okay. Now I know you're focused on the future, but but when you look back to how you came to be CEO of one of the world's uh, largest insurtechs or fintechs, is there really one thing that you can kind of put your finger on that kind of you would say it was it was that that kind of really helped me most? Was it your time at McKinsey when you were doing the research with uh, a lot of financial institutions on on insurance companies? Was it the contacts you made in the Valley when you were doing that that helped you fundraise? Was it just your love of data and, and research? Is there any one particular thing that you would elevate above all others that that for you is one of the main reasons, perhaps the main reason why you are where you are today? It comes back to the point that I said of connecting the dots in hindsight. It's all of the above and a lot of luck and a good timing. Uh, when we started the company, everybody, you know, the VCs kicked us off the stairs and basically said, uh, that's the dumbest thing ever because insurance is not a VCable business. You can't do that. It's regulatory. It's capital. It's, it's just not a good fit for that. And then it flipped to being really, really interesting. And we were fortunate enough to be in the forefront of that when, 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 the, you know, when the momentum flipped. But the way that we, we, you know, we come up to decisions is 
we, we, we take a lot of data, we, we put the right weights into it and the right kind of risk return outcome and we push for that. I think being in the Valley is definitely helpful in terms of team, talent, access to capital, et cetera. It's, it's, it's just beneficial. I think the McKinsey side helped me a lot from getting data to run some of the thoughts with some of the partners in the firm. There's just abundance of things that, that we were fortunate enough to, to basically have worked for us, but it's also relentless execution and important to know that, you know, there were probably 10 cases that the company was on, on deathbed. It's just, you know, it's always look from the outside, everything is up and to the right. It's startups and young companies are very, very fragile and every small thing can, can make or break them. From the outside, it always looks very, very trivial, but it's how you cope, how you manage, how you sort, and how you solve these things. That's what creates the value. And sorry, how, how close were you at, at any one stage to kind of, you know, having to throw in the towel? Uh, and what was it that, that brought you back from that brink? No, it's, it, I think the numerous things. It's not, you know, it, it wasn't that we were sitting and we need to shut off the company. But it was, you know, you have a problem with the reinsurer, you had a problem with the fronters, the policy management system that you thought you were going to work with is not an option. So you were like, oh, damn, I, I think we need to build a new policy management system. What, what would the investor think? The data uh, provider or the first one that we used changed the prices on us. That changed the entire business model. And then we're like, what the hell are we doing? There's like, there's an abundance of things. You know, you start and you're writing business and it's very, very profitable. And then you have a total loss fire and it ruins your entire uh, loss ratio because you only have, I don't know, $50,000 in premiums and, uh, and a million and a half dollars of, of, of fire. So your loss ratio is, you know, 30, you know, 3,000%. It's like, it's just, there's a lot of things that it's how you sort through them and solve. That's what brings the value. I always, we have a discussion in the company and we always say that, you build IP by basically surpassing tough things and, and, and building things in that time. Otherwise, uh, everybody else can do it. So it's fine. All of the tough, you know, all of the scars on the back, it's what basically build the IP and the capabilities in the company and, and enable us to be who we are now. Well, I guess there's always challenges as a, as a, as a founder. I think uh, it was one of the partners at uh, Y Combinator I was listening to recently saying that uh, being a founder is like being punched in the face every day. So uh, I'm sure, sure there are plenty of challenges. Just one final thing. What advice would you have for someone looking to set up a, an insurtech or a fintech right now? What, 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 what should they bear in mind if they're going to go down that path? Yeah, a couple of points. A, I think it's, a, it's, it's an amazing time to build a company now. You have abundance of talent that is available now that wasn't available six months ago. So it's a perfect time to do that. You can work in the garage or whatever. And once you're going to come out with a product, hopefully the world is going to be over that COVID crap. I think there's still there's a lot more educated investors that are looking for the right talent and the right idea. And there is no lack of capital out there. So I think it's a really, really good uh, time to do that. Also, there's a lot more... The playbook on what you need in terms of insurtech is all is also a lot more written. When when I started, I didn't know nobody knew what an MGA is, and nobody know the reinsurers didn't have an idea how to work with a startup, and you know how to build the policy management system, how to do the claim organization. Everything was a lot more complex. You had to figure it out by yourself. Now there's cookie cutter kind of options. Everybody knows what's the path. And you just need to focus on the core things that you bring to the table rather than a very, very broad problem solving 
Okay. Well, it's been a real pleasure speaking with, with you, Asaf Wand, co-founder and CEO of, of Hippo. And perhaps next time uh, we speak, your, your, the, the, the Hippo Hippo will be as, as well known and as big as the, as the Gecko Gecko. But really appreciate your taking the time uh, to join us here on the FN Tech podcast. Asaf Wand, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Like many digital-first businesses, Hippo has had a pretty good pandemic in terms of growth and fundraising. After we recorded this interview, it raised another $350 million, taking its total to more than $700 million. Of course, as a company, Hippo isn't immune from the virus. It's had to adapt to working from home and onboarding new recruits over Zoom, something that may have a long-term impact on company culture and businesses of all sorts all over the world. To mitigate the impact, and this is perhaps my favourite revelation from the interview, Asaf set up a hippo school for employees with kids. And you know, if he cares so much about them and their sanity, then I think it's pretty safe to assume he cares deeply about their customers too. Something that can make all the difference when building a billion dollar hippo or any other cuddly creature. So thank you, Asaf Wand, and thank you for listening to the first FinTech podcast of 2021 with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Program. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes via the website, www.parisfintechforum.com. If you have any comments, suggestions or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Paris Fin Forum or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back again next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye bye.